Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to What's Working in Washington. Today's show is brought to you by Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, MCEDC, helping companies start, grow, and accelerate business in Montgomery County. The future starts here. Go to thinkmoco.com today. Coming up on today's show. We have to create an environment where you feel safe, our employees feel safe making mistakes, taking risks, trying new things. We have to be on the cutting edge of technology. We have to know what's going on in the world. You've worked on yourself and therefore you have a better relationship and compassion and empathy with others. I don't know how you could put a price tag on that. It's not the greatest technologies or the greatest ideas that survive. It's the things that meet a market need. And so really focusing on, does somebody need this enough that they're willing to vote with their money to, to obtain it? You know, our show's growing thanks to the support of sponsors such as Eagle Bank and Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation. They know how productive and innovative our region is, And, you know, they see the need to share the stories that this show tells. This week, we have three great guests. Beth Johnson is the founder and CEO of RP3 Agency, a creative marketing company here in the D.C. region. If you've gone to a Nats game or you bought real estate, you've run across their work. Daniel Torresini is a former type A personality who realized that they are needs to help us figure out how to recharge and become more productive. You know, we're athletes. We're mental athletes as well. How do you recharge? He's going to talk about how. And Julie Lenzer is an entrepreneur who's done many interesting things in this region over the years. Startup Maryland, she started various companies, she's worked in government, and now she's turning her attention to economic development and innovation at the University of Maryland. We're going to learn what opportunities there are in this region that are driven by our universities. That's what's in store for you in this week's show. If you've been to the Nationals game in the Norfolk Southern Lounge or you've been to Children's National Center or perhaps been engaged in buying real estate with Long & Foster, you're familiar with the work of our next guest agency. Beth Johnson is founder and CEO of RP3 Agency, a creative communications company here in the D.C. region. Creative Communications D.C.? Really? I know. It is true. So, yeah, we started RP3 in 2009, and we focus on helping organizations leverage their brand for business value and so we do everything from brand strategy to advertising pr web development anything that sparks engagement between an organization and its audience and typically in the most creative package possible well let's use the example the norfolk southern scoreboard because uh many of our listeners probably see the trains going around in the score (laughs) it's really i've always loved it being a train train geek but How does the creative process, how do you come to something like that? Well, Norfolk Southern, we are agency of record for them. We have been since uh, 2010. And we've worked with them to help them translate their brand into engagements with their audience uh, to motivate them to think differently about trains. You know, you oftentimes when you're, you know, you're waiting for a train, you're annoyed or all your interactions with freight rail, to be honest, as a consumer, not good ones. So what we want to do is enhance their reputation. And to do that, we have to create these positive moments between our audience, which in this case are opinion elites inside the Beltway that impact Norfolk Southern from a regulatory standpoint and uh, Norfolk Southern and what they have to offer. 
So that's how Nats Park was born, because the Nationals happens to be the home of many, many opinion elites who spend a lot of time at the ballpark. And we created this amazing engagement between uh, these two audiences by creating a a scoreboard and building it out of trains, which is something that has never been done before. But it was a great way to showcase uh, the history of Norfolk Southern and how it harkens back to, you know, the 1980s where, uh, or sorry, the 1880s where uh, rail workers used to stop along uh, the rail line to play baseball games in different towns all across the country. And so it's a really great way to bring freight rail into a positive experience for um, How do you manage a team of people? You know, do you you sit down one day and say, hey, let's build a train table to promote (laughs) our, you know, how how does the creative, how do you capture and manage as a CEO a creative process to create things? How does that happen? Well, great creative is born out of insight and strategy. So there's a lot of science that goes into our work, but I would say that even more important than the science is, you know, how the art and the science comes together. And there's this thread of emotion that um, kind of brings those two things together. And to manage that is really um, a unique opportunity. And as a leader, I think it's very different managing a group of creative people uh, than it is managing most other types of companies. Because we have to create an environment where you feel safe, our employees feel safe making mistakes, taking risks, trying new things. We have to be on the cutting edge of technology. We have to know what's going on in the world. We have to be willing to put ourselves out there. And to do that, you have to be students first. You, you never stop learning. You know, you're always learning about what's new, what's interesting, what's different, what's going on in the minds and the hearts of consumers and how you can find the intersection of that and your organization and the brand that you're building. And so creating that environment means sometimes, you know, having, uh, cre- being okay with having tension. Uh, sometimes the best work I've ever done has come out of creative tension. And other times the best work comes out of mistakes that you've made and you've learned from. So I do think it's it's very different leading a group of people where emotion is one of the primary factors in doing great work. I've had other CEOs tell me about the importance of letting employees make mistakes. But you told me a story before you came on the air that I thought was a great a great work. It was a great example of how a CEO can actually show a mistake. So, okay, tell us a little bit about the about the robot, if <laughs> the you don't robot. mind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going public with a mistake. <laughs> Sorry about So, yeah, we uh, had a client that we were working with, and it was a long-term trusted partnership. And I think a lot of this comes down to trust, and it's internal trust and trust with clients. So I think there are times where we take leaps of faith together. And this this was one of those times where we decided that we were going to build a robot, and it was going to be a public stunt. We were going to be signing a big card publicly, and we were going to invite media and everything. And we knew going in that this had never been done before. So our tech team built the robot and there was a flaw. And so in the end, the implementation didn't go off. And so what did we do? You know, what did the client do? We thought, oh, my gosh, are we going to be fired? I got with the client and we decided that what we would do is have a party. And we actually celebrated 
the learning from the robot disaster. And to this day, and this client I've been working with for 17 years, so it's it's a long-term partnership. But we decided we would bring the teams together and we would make it a fun experience. And we did that. And we celebrated, we documented what we learned. And ultimately, some of that learning led us to being successful in building the scoreboard out of trains at Nats Park. So there were some learnings in that tech process that we applied and had a successful project later. I've had other CEOs that I know describe this as failing upward. Yeah, like, right? or Fail- failing harder, failing faster, learning to fail and- But being yeah. willing to learn. Yeah. yeah. I also hear and experience in you from standpoint of leadership and leading from um, building. It sounds to me that this is really something that came from the formation of the business. You're, you're an entrepreneur, you own your own company. How did that come about and how do you think it shapes your ability to manage creative people now? I think entrepreneurialism is all about perseverance. And I have to say that the way we started our agency um, brought out in me something that I didn't know I had. And that is I can get through anything uh, because I had worked uh, in this industry for many years uh, under another creative leader And I joined his company in the early 90s and helped him grow that business for 16 years. And in 2008 and 9, the economy was softening. The business was downsizing. We weren't doing as well. He was aging. I thought we were going to sell the business or evolve the business, but he actually called me in his office in June of 2009, one day in the afternoon, and he said, Beth, we're closing the business not in a week, not in a month, today. And so that was a defining moment for me. And I remember it vividly, bringing everyone in the agency together and sharing the terrible news, working through the tears and the fear of what was coming next, but also feeling at that moment like, you know what? I am a CEO and I'm going to step up and do this my way. And so at that moment, I decided that I would I would start my own business. And so I put my computer on my chair, rolled it to the elevator, and went to down one floor to a temporary space, and that's how RP3 was born. You never looked back. Beth, thanks for taking the time to share some of your experiences and reminding us that here in the D.C. region, it is a center for creativity. There is so much creative going on in this region, and I would say that the influx of millennials um, that maybe started in the past five or seven years has transformed the region, and there is so much creativity to celebrate here. So the arts, businesses, All of these things make for the right environment for creativity to prosper. And I think this region is no longer going to be defined by just one big business, the federal government. Beth Johnson, RP3 Agency's founder and CEO. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Like many big cities, Washington, D.C. is populated by people who get things done, but pride themselves on killing it, working all the time, and just basically being type A personalities. Is it healthy? Is it the best way to approach work as we approach work today? Daniel Torresini is founder of Recharge. He's got a lot of expertise, and he's a former type A hard-charging guy who's still hard-charging, but trying to change the way people work. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Well, you were you were, and still are a hard-charging guy. What's wrong with that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been this type A personality, which I think many people can relate to, but uh, ultimately there's positive and negatives to that kind of personality set. 
And I think, uh, you know, generations ago, it was great. It was fantastic to have this subset of time where you could really focus on being productive. There's been some social norms that have evolved. There's been some technological advances that have evolved. There's been some um, office space uh, constraints that have evolved that really have restricted our ability to, quote unquote, recharge. I think a lot of our culture has gotten the fact that physical health is critically important. Exercise is important. I think we're just starting to get around to the fact now of how critical sleep is to our overall health and wellness. But two, there's a business case to it. And we can go in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do that. that. So you say there's a business case. I'm a type A. I'm listening to this and saying, wait a minute. I don't need to take a nap. I don't need to focus on being present. I just need to... Buckle down. I need to lean in. Yeah, leaning in is fantastic short term. The problem is if you're taking a strategic approach, companies now, a lot of Fortune 500 companies are focused on engagement and they're focused on burnout. And burnout is insanely expensive. I mean, it's just silly for companies that have to deal with turnover. You You have to rehire. You have to retrain. Finding a good employee in the first place is a very challenging task for any company. And then once you find a good person, you want to keep them. You want to keep that type A person going in a career and not just turn over in a year or two because they've hit a wall. And that case is prevalent all over D.C. in every major urban area. I hear you. I want to increase productivity. What are some of the specific tools that business can use through, you know, through your company, Recharge, or generally, what are specific things that, that people can use to increase the productivity of their workers and create these, these white spaces for them? One thing that companies can do is start to take a look at sleep health in a general sense, right? I think sometimes it's a little bit touchy with employees because you don't want to literally be in their bedroom and telling them what they can and cannot do. For us, napping is a huge part uh, of just be encouraging and being a proponent and supporter of your employees taking a 20-minute break for themselves. I've been exposed to, you know, the whole phenomenon of workouts, you know, from the standpoint of it being delivered. You got an executive, you got a half hour, you want to lose weight. Here's the structured workout. Here's the structured diet. I think the corporate America really gets that. What you're telling me and what I'm hearing from you is that, that the ability to take a break, to have a nap, to meditate, to be mindful is just as relevant. So how do you take this away from the theoretical and make it practical for individuals who are busy or for corporations who are trying to figure out whether or not their employees are getting something, you know, getting something meaningful? And there's definitely a business case for companies to invest in their employees' rest and regeneration and to restore their bodies and their mind. So we've got a whole library of resources that we can provide in the realm of restoration and regeneration. One of the things that we offer is a power nap where you go in, we've got these beautifully curated power nap cocoons, we call them, and you lie down on a Yogi bow, uh, which you'll have to look up, but they're the most comfortable piece of furniture. It's, it's kind of a crime to call it uh, a bean bag. Uh, and it's something you lie down, the experience where we turn down the lights, we turn on these binaural beats, which really kind of match your uh, brainwave state to lull you into a state of rest, relaxation, and sleep. And in 25 minutes, uh, the alarm goes off and you're up and you're out the door. So this is not this long pronounced 
uh, rigorous thing that you, that you have to spend hours and hours in. And it ties into science where I'm not sleeping long enough to get into the deep REM cycle where, you know, I have to sleep longer or else I feel cranky when I get up. This is, I've had people talk to me about mindfulness, uh, meditation. How is it a corporate tool? How is it a, a tool that type A people can use and do use to make themselves more effective? Well, I think today the science is conclusive. I mean, you can go through a body of research that Harvard scientists and universities all over the nation have done that cite the benefits of meditation and mindfulness specifically because mindfulness as a type of meditation is particularly tenable in a corporate environment. It spurs so many great uh, benefits from just general alert, alertness, uh, performance, creativity. When we teach mindfulness, we've got three main cores of, of meditation. One of them is mindfulness. The other is rest, a deep rest class, and sound. One of the misconceptions of meditation is it's too hard. I can't do it. Uh, I can't sit for this long period of time. My mind always wanders. And that stigma is, is slowly shifting, mostly because the largest proponents of rest, relaxation, uh, meditation, are those large Fortune 500 companies that really get it. You're talking about the Googles, the Pizza Hut, Ben & Jerry's. These are the types of companies that are investing in their employees' health and wellness, and they're paying dividends. What would be the first thing you'd recommend somebody do when they're feeling overwhelmed and they just literally cannot work another moment? The best place to start is probably with the mindfulness meditation because I think people resonate with that the best. Uh, and I think if you can deliver the why, that feeling that you get afterwards, uh, which is very difficult to articulate, that experience that you take away with you is what we're looking to land. And that gets people coming back and back. Because while you may not in that first session find out and discover something ultimately profound, what you may get, which is something that I personally got, are starting off with the small things, okay? Getting a better night's sleep. Uh, number two, all of us can relate to a miserable and difficult drive and commute around DC. How do we make that drive a little bit more pleasant? Well, some of that is shifting your frame of mind. How do you treat the relationships that you're in day to day? So you get home, how do you treat your partner? A lot of that has to do with your state of mind and shifting your mindset to a present moment. If at the very least, all that happens is you're able to manage stress, relieve some anxiety, have a better commute home, have better relationships with the people around you. You've worked on yourself and therefore you have a better relationship and compassion and empathy with others. I don't know how you could put a price tag on that. I don't think you can put a price tag on it in the same way that you can't put a price tag on health. Daniel Tarsini, the founder of Recharge, a business here in the DC region, helping you get more mindful and healthier as you go through your hard work day, all you type A personalities. Thanks again. What does it take to be successful in government, academia, and entrepreneurship? There's surprising overlap. Our next guest is going to talk about how you succeed in all three. Julie Lenzer is the Associate Vice President for Innovation and Economic Development at University of Maryland. Well, you uh, you started Startup Maryland. You've been a serial entrepreneur in this region. You spent some time in the Department of Commerce, and now you're at University of Maryland. What are the similarities? Well, interestingly, there's a lot of similarities, um, and people would not think of either, uh, you know, government or academia as places that you can be innovative and, and entrepreneurial, but those are the exact places that need entrepreneurial thinking. And so uh, what I find is that there's a lot of great potential in both of these types of, you know, seemingly bureaucratic 
uh, entities and organizations. And what they need is they need entrepreneurial thinking. They need entrepreneurs to come in and figure out how to get some stuff done and breaking through the barriers to do well, so. Many people interpret entrepreneurship as being about making money, but I I don't think that's what you're talking about, right? Not at all. Not at all. It's about um, having a vision and and doing whatever you need to do to make it happen. So oftentimes entrepreneurs don't have control of the resources. Uh, likewise in government and in academia, I, it's a it's an influence power over an authority power. And so it's very similar to entrepreneurship. Scarce resources, uh, you know, lots of obstacles and pushing through to get things done. So you're talking about potentiality. Mm. Let's start. Let's start with the use case. You're at University of Maryland, one of the leading research universities in the region, if not the leading university. Where's the potentiality in that? So uh, University of Maryland um, and what attracted me to come back to Maryland after my stint at the federal government was incredible assets and resources. As you said, we are a top rank uh, university in innovation, uh, creation, uh, patents. In fact, we just got uh, an award. I think we were the the top 20 of patents issued uh, last in 2016. and uh, But we're not really hitting at our weight class when an economic and social impact perspective. So if you, uh, we have $550 million in federal research, but the, the, the things that are coming out to commercial, uh, to commercial use are just not what they should be. And so I'm here to break down the barriers and figure out what are the shifts that need to happen to make us more of a powerhouse in economic creation. And I've heard that story or that situation described to me, federal agencies, other universities, just about any place. We seem to have a, a large number, a disproportionately large knowledge workforce in this town. I keep your potentiality. What What is holding us back then? Well, there, there, I, what I've seen is there's a couple things. I mean, first, um, we have to get out of our own way. You know, sometimes we've got the bureaucracy um, that we just have to to be able to draw the line between what are some of the policies that are holding us back and, you know, what can we do? Um, I think culture is a really big thing, mindset. So we've got, uh, you know, a federal workforce here sometimes, and we've got great companies. Sometimes they have um, what I'll call golden handcuffs, right? You got a great job working for the government, working for a big company. Why would you want to go out and start? your own you know so we've got um, people I'm, I'm not going to say they get comfortable but yeah sometimes um, sometimes they do and so this you know risk aversion too you know when you're working you got a cushy job do I really want to take a risk so yeah I mean it's cultural I think it's policy um, you know I know you've touched on a lot lack of capital um, there's there's some of that too and I think that all ties around the the culture mindset all of those things. So there's, they're always in, impediments. So you're a ball of fire. Anytime I see you in an event, do you have to be energetic? Are entrepreneurs uber energetic? Are they, I've heard them say, oh, I kiss take no for an answer, but that makes no sense to me. What? Yeah, you got to be able to take no. Sometimes you got to be able to know when, you know, to walk away and when to run. But I think it's it's this whole perseverance. I mean, it's it's having it's having a passion for what you're doing, um, you know, persevering and pushing through those barriers. Anytime an obstacle comes up, how do you go over, around, under, or through it? Uh, but then also knowing when to pivot. So not being so bullheaded that the, the market is signaling that this shouldn't happen and knowing that you need to focus more on what are you trying to achieve rather than how you're going to achieve it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned pivot because when I talk with entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs, they'll often ask me two questions. One, how do I know if I want to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> and my answer to that is if you're asking me that question, you don't know. Yeah, right. And you don't want to be one right. because anybody who's an entrepreneur doesn't ask that question. But the other question that is hard to answer is how do I know when to stop? Mm. How do I know when to pivot? In your career, what are some of the things that you've used 
as a guidepost for, you know what, it's time to stop or, you know what, it's time to pivot. You know, I, I tell people um, I, when I was talking about being the federal government, I said, you know, the good news about banging your head against the wall is that you can stop. Um, and sometimes you just get tired um, or you get the market signals that, um, you know, if you keep talking to customers and they're nodding their head, yeah, this is a great idea, but they're not voting with their dollars, something is amiss. And, you know, it's it's not the greatest technologies or the greatest ideas that survive. It's the greatest, it's, it's the things that meet a market need. And so really focusing on, does somebody need this enough that they're willing to vote with their money to to obtain it. And so that's that's oftentimes a hard look at, you know, if I if you're not getting paid to do it, there's a reason either you're not doing the right thing or the customer doesn't find it compelling enough to solve the problem. They're okay the way things are. Yeah, I mean the IRS if you do something for a number of years, you're not making money, they'll stop giving you tax deductions because <laughs> it's true. They just yeah. say it's a hobby because right. why would anybody do something for a long time unless it's actually accomplishing something? So Empathy. We talk about entrepreneurs all the time. You have to be empathy. Do you think entrepreneurs really are empathetic enough about their own lives? That's a great question. I think that, uh, yeah, entrepreneurs tend to be outward focusing, not inward focusing. And um, a little bit of self-actualization uh, and self-reflection is a good thing. You know, it's um, people, entrepreneurship, there is often a high price to pay. And you have to be passionate about and really have this idea that you're willing to push forward. Great example of this is um, after I cashed out of my company in 2005, um, we started a food company. It was a gluten-free snack food company. And this was in 2006. And everybody's like, oh, gluten-free is huge. Well, again, this was 2006. And it wasn't huge then because most people didn't realize that they needed gluten-free. And so I did it for about 18 months. And when I realized that the profit margins in food are really, really small, like 2% compared to software, that's like 30, 50, 60%, I realized I didn't have the passion for that. And uh, when I saw what it really took to do that kind of a business, I made a decision after 18 months and a couple hundred thousand dollars, I said, this isn't for me. So to paraphrase living in New York, if you go, meh, it's time to stop. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's hard. It is hard to stop, but there's no shame in it. And maybe no, that's the point. No, 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 I've failed many, many times. So the message for all of our entrepreneurial listeners clearly is get ready to persevere, get ready to knock down and give yourself a break. That's right. That's right. This is hard stuff. Go find your tribe that can help you, you know, know when it's time to walk away, help you hold up that mirror to look at yourself and uh, persevere when you need to. Great advice, Julie. Thanks for taking the time. That was Julie Lenzer from University of Maryland. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online contributors are Michael Hoffman, Barbara Ulrich, and Candace Pye. Music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room and The Sunbathers. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And please rate the podcast. It helps us spread the word about the interesting stories we're telling on what's working in Washington. And also let us know who we should be talking to on the show. Tweet us at, at what's working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.